0: Section 22 of Pentrophion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corinne LePage. Pentrophion by Alexis Sawyer. Fish, Part 1. Fish. Perhaps it has not been sufficiently remarked that the science of ichthyophagy is generally developed in a direct ratio with the civilization of a people. Man began at first by satisfying the imperious necessities of his stomach. He then eat to live, and all was good to him. Experience by degrees gave rise to eclectism, choice, It was then discovered that a coarse and solid food might be replaced by a delicate and savory alimentation, joyous appetite, and sensuality. Its effeminate companion took the place of hunger, and this happy couple gave birth to the more amiable of fairies who, under the name of gastronomy, was soon to govern the world and to prescribe to it imperishable laws." It is asserted that the art of preparing fish was one of the first boons of this powerful sovereign, and that, instructed by her, Thetis rendered Ichthyophagus, the god of light and the fine arts. The Jews, an agricultural people, living far from the borders of the sea, attached but very little importance to fishing and the researches necessarily attendant on it so much so that we hardly perceive any trace among them of this kind of food, which Moses did not entirely interdict, since that wise legislator was satisfied with prohibiting fishes without scales or fins. What an immense wealth remained unexplored, let us pity them for not having known how to profit by it, notwithstanding the goodwill of the Phoenicians, inhabitants of the coast who brought them the produce of their maritime excursions. Let us say it. The Hebrews were tolerably bad cooks. They possessed most admirable laws, a fertile country, courage, and many virtues, but their sobriety would never allow them to understand the art of good living, in that they are to be pitied. We must agree that the Egyptians had better taste— Worshippers of certain fish, they used to embalm them as a means of preservation, and what is still better, they eat others in spite of the example of their priests, who never touched them. In fact, the preparation of those dishes required the trouble of a little study and culinary labor, therefore, to avoid it, they eat the fish raw when very hungry. The epicures dried them in the sun, and they were served salted on great solemnities." but it was left to a woman to understand this wholesome and delicate food, and to raise it to the rank it ought always to have occupied. Gaitis, let her be named with admiration, queen of Syria, and no doubt a beautiful woman, was so fond of fish that, in order to be continually supplied with the choicest quality, she ordered all caught in her kingdom to be brought to her— and that none shall be eaten without the royal permission. This law, for it really was one, created great dissatisfaction, but she very sensibly allowed them to complain, and continued to treat herself and those of her privileged subjects, whom she condescended sometimes to admit to her table, with the most exquisite dishes of fish, such as the tunny, conger eel, and carp. It is much to be regretted that the chroniclers of that time have forgotten to transmit to us the name of the cook of this illustrious queen, and the recipes of the sauces she preferred. With great pleasure we turn to the Greeks, that charming people who had only to set their foot on the most barren soil to cover it with flowers, and who laid the foundation of ichthyophagy, as well as other sciences. It appears, however, that, at first, They thought but little of fish as an aliment. None had ever been served to the heroes of Homer, and Ulysses, relating that his hungry companions had partaken of some fish, seems to excuse them by saying, Hunger pressed their digestive organs. To be sure, a celebrated philosopher, and also an amiable Epicurean, attributed this grievous abstinence of those warriors to the fear of being enervated by dishes too delicious. And then, the terrible Achilles and the impetuous Ajax could not, perhaps, make up their minds to degustate under their tents a sole au gratin, or a fried herring, with the slow precaution more humble mortals willingly submit to. But shortly after that, fresh and salt fish became one of the principal articles of diet with the Hellenes. Aristophanes and the gastrophilist Athenus, Allude to it a hundred times in their writings, and various personages are the subjects of biting sarcasms on account of their excessive partiality to the mullet, scar, and turbot. We may name, among others, Philoxenes of Cythera, who, learning from his doctor he was going to die of indigestion for having eaten too much of a most exquisite fish. Be it so, he calmly exclaimed, but, before I go— allow me to finish the remainder. Everyone knows the witty jokes of Lucian, who informs us that he knew a philosopher who examined, with most serious comicality, the nature of the soul of an oyster. Highly favoured by the neighbourhood of the sea, the Greek population applied themselves with that particular taste which characterised them to distinguish the best species, and skillful cooks knew how to give to fish the most refined flavor, thanks to the numerous combinations of ingredients which we too have learned from the ancient authors who have written on dietetics. They possess various ways of preparing them with salt or oil or aromatics. Athenus has transmitted to us some very important precepts upon their seasoning— Aeschylus and Sophocles were not above lowering their tragic muse by sometimes introducing remarks on fish sauce. The productions of the sea had for Athens such an irresistible interest that a law of police forbade all fishmongers to sit down until they had parted with the whole of their stock, so that the uncomfortable position of standing made them more submissive and induced them to dispose of the fish at a more reasonable price. This regulation, in the Billingsgate of Athens, was very rigorously observed, and the purchasers were highly delighted with it. They also required that the fish should always be out of the water, and this wise law, consequently, did not allow its being preserved or the price to be increased and finally, as soon as any fish was brought to the market, they were required to call the customers together immediately, by a kind of market bell, which was a sort of invitation to come and make their purchases. Some would-be philosophers, members of the opposition of that period, thought of raising their voices against common taste. Symmachus, Polycrates, and Lamprius tried to prove in their writings that those who eat fish were the most cruel and ferocious of men. These tender ichthyophilists were laughed at, and their works had no sale. The Romans inherited the predilection of the Greeks. For the dumb companions of the fair Amphitrite, but, excited by the love of the marvellous, they stalked the sea with imaginary beings, and they saw whales of four acres, fishes of two hundred cubits, and even that eel, or that serpent, which veridical navigators have seen again in our days. It was then thirty feet in length, but now it is much longer. Pliny, who believed so many things, swore to these by the twelve great gods of Olympus, at all events we are much indebted to that laborious naturalist for very precious information, he has made us acquainted with the scare, which the Roman epicures preferred to every other species. After the scare, the eel pout, or lotus's liver, enjoyed a great reputation. The red mullet, which is still much esteemed, was considered as one of the most delicate of dishes, and the Romans, in fashionable circles, employed it in a refinement of pleasure of a singular kind. It is well known that this fish, when the scales are removed, still remains a fine pink colour. The fops of Rome, having remarked that, at death, this colour passed through a succession of the most beautiful shades, the poor mullet was served alive, enclosed in a glass vessel, and the guests, attentive and greedy of emotions, enjoyed this cruel spectacle which presented to them a gradation of colours which insensibly disappeared.' The greatest sensualists killed it in brine, and Apicius was the first who invented this kind of luxury. The brine most in use, in such cases, was made with the blood of mackerel, and that was one of the varieties of that famous garum, so highly praised by the Latin authors, and which was to them, at that period, what the fish sauces of the English are now. We will give in this work the various preparations of this so celebrated condiment, and the reader will then be able to judge for himself. Apicius, the man of culinary progress, proposed a prize to anyone who could invent a new brine made with the liver of red mullets. History has not transmitted to us the name of the fortunate conqueror, but Juvenal informs us that, as in a cellar, offered sixty pounds for one of these fishes, which weighed six pounds. This was, after all, but a trifling folly, in the midst of so much extravagances which several writers have carefully registered. Lucullus, the most ostentatious of the patricians, had a mountain cut through the neighborhood of Naples, so as to open a canal and bring up the sea and its fishes to the center of the gardens of his sumptuous villa." The love of fish became a real mania. Turbots excited a furore of admiration. The Murania Helena was worshipped. Hortensius, the orator, actually wept over the death of one he had fed with his own hands. The daughter of Drusus ornamented hers with golden rings. Each had a name, and would come with speed when it heard the voice of the master, whose happiness depended on his fish. Sometimes, in a moment of over-tenderness for his dear Morena Helena, Vadius Polio, a Roman knight of the highest distinction, and one of the intimate friends of the Emperor Augustus, could find nothing better to do than to feed them with the flesh of his slaves, who were thrown to them, alive. It is true that these wretched creatures generally deserved this terrible chastisement. For instance, Seneca speaks of one who had the awkwardness to break a crystal vase while waiting at supper on the irascible polio. This unfortunate slave, having managed to escape from the hands of those who were conducting him to this horrible death, he went and fell on his knees at the feet of Caesar, whom he implored to inflict some less frightful torture. Augustus, moved to the very soul, granted him his liberty— had all of Vettius's vases broken, and ordered that the pieces should be used to fill up the reservoir in which the barbarous knight fed his Morena Helena. Having given this rapid sketch of the principal periods of ichthyophagy among the ancients, little remains to be said of later ages in which we find few traces of any particular or excessive predilection of this kind of alimentation. If we are to believe Dio— The first inhabitants of Great Britain never eat fish. The English have not thought it expedient to imitate their ancestors in this respect. Under the reign of Edward II, certain fish, especially the sturgeon, never appeared in England except on the table of the king. It was prohibited to all others. In 1138 Stephen wanted to modify this interdiction but after his reign it was again in vigour and considered as a royal prerogative. In France anybody could eat fish, of any and all kinds, but every fishmonger was obliged to obtain permission from the king to sell it. The sumptuary laws of that kingdom inform us of nothing very interesting on this essential of gastrology. We find, however, by the Edict of 1294, that Philippe Bel allowed, on fast days, two herring pottages, and only one sort of fish, a meager dinner, if ever there was one, and which, thank heaven, has fallen into complete disuse. Louis twelfth was very fond of good cheer, and, consequently, he appointed six fishmongers to supply his table with fresh water fish. Francis I had twenty-two, Henry the Great twenty-four. Under the reign of Louis fourteenth. Fish acquired a singular vogue in the city as well as at court, owing to the marvellous talent of that prince's cook, who discovered the art, supposed to be lost, of giving to the delicate flesh of the pike, the carp, and the trout, the shape and flavour of the most exquisite game. At this period we have celebrated Vitel, one of the most illustrious officers of the household that ever flourished in the palace of the princes of Condé, this inimitable major domo understood that a dinner without fish was a cheerless one. One day, when his noble master entertained Louis the Fourteenth at a royal banquet at Chantilly, which the genius of Vatel rendered more brilliant, the fish from the coast failed. He sent everywhere, but none could be found. He was completely bewildered. He met his august master, whose kind words, full of benevolence, only served to increase his desperation. He left him, ran to his chamber, took his sword, and three times pierced his heart. Shortly after, fish arrived from all quarters. Vitel was called. No, Vettel. He was sought for, and at last discovered. Vitel was no more." It appears that, in former times, there was a remarkable consumption of fish in England on the 4th of July, the festival of St. Ulric. The following verses, by Barnaby Gouge, prove it. St. Holdrick Wheresoever Holdrick hath his place, the people there brings in, both capes and pikes and mullets fat, his favour here to win. Amid the church there sitteth one, and to the altar nigh, that selleth fish, and so good cheap, that every man may buy, nor anything he loseth here, bestowing thus his pain, for when it hath been offered once, tis brought him all again, that twice or thrice he sells the same, ungodliness such gain, both still bring in, and plenteously the kitchen doth maintain, whence comes the same religion new, What kind of god is this, same Holdrick here, that so desires and so delights in fish? An ordinance of King John informs us that, in the fourteenth century, people eat porpoises and even seals. In the days of the troubadours, they fished for dolphins and whales in the Mediterranean, and the flesh of these sea-monsters was considered excellent. STURGEON This enormous cartilaginous inhabitant of the ocean, the Mediterranean, the Red, Black, and Caspian Seas, received from the Greeks, after its death, honors in which none of the most delicate or renowned fish participated. It was announced to the guests by the sound of trumpets, and slaves, magnificently dressed, placed it on the table in the midst of garlands and flowers. Joy brightened every face— A more generous wine filled fresh goblets, and some flatterers, for the sturgeon possessed many, with eyes fixed on the noble axipenser, compared its flesh to the ambrosia of the immortals. The high price of sturgeon contributed in no small degree to such brilliant praise, this king of banquets would have ruined a modest citizen of Athens, and hardly did the exiguity of its proportions to permit its figuring among the expensive rarities of an attic supper, when it had cost only a thousand drams, or about sixteen pounds sterling. The Romans, imitators and emulators of the luxury of the Greeks, were almost equally fond of this fish, and, like them, reserved it for princely tables, or aristocratic opulence. It would seem, however, that the enthusiasm excited by the sturgeon somewhat cooled under the reign of Vespasian. Perhaps at this period it became more common, or was sold at a more moderate price. Nothing more was requisite in Rome to deprive a dish of its most brilliant vogue and most powerful patronage, However, the poet-marshal, by nature no great flatterer, passes a pompous eulogium on the monstrous fish, and judges it worthy of being placed on the luxurious tables of the Palatine Mount, that west end of Rome, rendered illustrious by the presence of kings, nobles, and emperors. We have before observed that the sturgeon was formerly a royal dish in England, A celebrated traveller assures us that, at the present day, the Chinese abstain from it, and the sovereign of the Celestial Empire consigns it to his own kitchens or dispenses it to a few of his greatest favourites. This gigantic axipenser, which often weighs two hundred pounds, is quite common in Siberia, where they even catch some of a much larger size— since some of the females have been found to contain 200 pounds weight of eggs. In 1750, one was caught in Italy, which weighed 550 pounds. There are some in Norway, the head alone of which yields a ton of oil, and whose immense proportions would formerly have astounded the most intrepid gastrophilists of Athens, Syracuse, and Rome. An alimentary substance called caviar, furnished almost exclusively by Russia to the rest of Europe, is prepared from the spawn of several kinds of sturgeons. The spawn of the large sturgeon produces caviar of an inferior quality. That of the common sturgeon and the sterlet is prized as being more delicate when it is carefully separated from the vessels and membranes with which it is intersected, well impregnated with brine, pressed and slightly dried. White caviar, it is said, is the best of all. It is reserved for the court. There are two sorts of caviar, granulated caviar and sac caviar. The manufacture of the first named is performed by pressing the spawn on a sieve and rubbing it in every direction to remove the pellicles which adhere to it, after which it is put into strong brine for one hour, then drained in a sieve, and finally pressed close into barrels so as to entirely fill them before the head is fastened down. The manufacture of the other kind of caviar only differs in two particulars. The spawn is manipulated while in the brine in order to soften it, and is put in small portions of about half a pound each into linen bags, which are powerfully twisted to extract all the brine before it is pressed into the barrels. The workmen employed in these operations make a third kind of caviar with the refuse. This sort, used only by the poorest classes, deserves no notice. For some years past, they have introduced the method of salting the rows as they are taken from the fish and packing them into barrels, where they remain seven or eight months, after which they are again salted and then dried in the sun. Caviar occupies a very distinguished place in Russian, Turkish, German, and Italian gastronomy. The Greeks, in particular, live upon it almost exclusively during the long-lent fasts prescribed by their church. Red Mullet Philoxenes of Cythera supped one night with Dionysus, tyrant of Sicily. It happened that the prince was served with a magnificent mullet, whereas a very small one was presented to his guest. The philosopher took his fish in his hand and, with a very serious air, held it to his ear. Dionysus asked him what he was doing. I am busy with my Galathea, replied Philoxenes, and I am questioning him on the subject of Nerea, but I can obtain no answer from him because he was taken at too early an age. I am certain, however, that the other, evidently much older, which lies before you, is perfectly well acquainted with what I wish to know. The tyrant, who happened that evening to be in a good humor, laughed at the joke, and offered the larger mullet to the witty gastronomist. The unbridled and cruel luxury of ancient Rome required that this fish should be cooked by a slow fire, on the table and under a glass, that the guests might gloat on its sufferings before they satiated their appetites with its flesh. It is true that this barbarous gratification was very expensive, and it was necessary to be very rich to indulge in it. Consequently, it was decidedly very fashionable, quite natural, and in the very best taste. Ordinary mullets weighed about two pounds. These hardly deserved that their dying agonies should for an instant amuse the guests. They were worth only about fifteen pounds or twenty pounds each— but sometimes fortune threw their way much larger ones, and the opulent amateur esteemed himself only too fortunate when he could obtain a fish of three or four pounds, for a much higher sum than he had paid for the slave, tutor of his children. Crispinus was fond of mullets. He obtained one weighing four or six pounds, for which the fishmonger asked only sixty pounds, This was giving it away, and certainly the man did not understand his trade. Crispinus, on becoming the possessor of this wonderful treasure, was astonished at his good fortune, and the whole of Rome long refused to believe it. In the reign of Tiberius, three of these fish were sold for thirty thousand sesterces, or two hundred and nine pounds, and this emperor was one day generous enough to give up to P. Octavius for the low price of five thousand sesterces, a very fine mullet which had just been presented to him. And yet some persons of culinary authority paid but little attention to the flesh of this delicate fish. They sought only the liver and the head, and if they paid for it so dearly, it was solely to find some few mouthfuls more than these two parts.' to which caprice, enthusiasm, that fever of admiration, and we know not what extraordinary gastronomic rage gave an inestimable price, which, at the present day, excites only a smile of incredulity. Pliny speaks of a mullet caught in the Red Sea, which weighed eighty pounds. At how much, adds this great naturalist, would it have been valued had they caught it in the environs of Rome, We may suppose, without the least exaggeration, that many a senator would have offered one thousand five hundred pounds to become its possessor. It is thus that the mistress of the world foolishly dissipated in ephemeral whims the immense treasures poured into her lap by tributary kings, conquered and spoliated nations. Each day her patricians, knights, and nobles, tired of their importunate opulence— solicited new diversions and invented new excesses. The mullet, for a moment, satisfied their prodigality and amused their barbarity. But Heliogabalus appeared, and he imagined prodigies of gluttony which excited at once admiration and envy. The liver of this fish appeared to him too paltry. He took it into his head to be served with large dishes completely filled with the gills." Now we know that the mullet possesses only two. This dish, whose price would have enriched a hundred families, was worthy of the Sardanapalus of Rome, who, at the age of eighteen, had exhausted the treasures of the empire and whom a violent death seized most apropos, at the moment when he had attained the extreme limits of crime and infamy." The Romans served the mullet with a seasoning of pepper, rue, onions, dates, and mustard, to which they added the flesh of the sea hedgehog, reduced to a pulp and oil. When the liver alone was to be eaten, it was cooked, and then seasoned with pepper, salt, or a little garum. Some oil was added, and hares or fowls liver, and then oil was poured over the whole. The Greeks knew how to appreciate the mullet— They thought highly of those who caught on their own shores, and placed them in the first rank of the most exquisite dishes of their delicate cookery. It is with the eggs of mullets, when salted, pressed, washed, and dried, that the preparation known as botargo or botarcha is made. It is very recherche in Italy and other southern countries as a seasoning. Dr. Cloquet Sea Eel The sumptuous abode of El Crassus echoes with his sighs and groans. His children and slaves respect his profound sorrow and leave him with intelligent affection to solitude. That friend of great grief, so grateful to the afflicted soul because tears can flow unwitnessed. Alas, the favorite sea eel of Crassus is dead, and it is uncertain whether Crassus can survive it." This sensitive Roman caused his beloved fish to be buried with great magnificence. He raised a monument to its memory, and never ceased to mourn for it. This man, who displayed so little tenderness towards his servants, had extraordinary weakness concerning his fine sea-eels. He passed his life beside the superb fish-pond, where he lovingly fattened them from his own hand. Ornamented with necklaces of the finest pearls, and earrings of precious stones, all, at signal, swam towards him. Several fearlessly took the food he offered them, and some, as familiar as their absent and regretted companion, allowed their master to caress them without seeking to bite or avoid him. This singular passion, which at the present day we can hardly believe, in spite of the respectable authority of most serious writers, was very common at Rome, amongst those who were rich enough to rear such fish, C. Hirtius was the first to construct fish-ponds on the seashore, to which many visitors were attracted by their magnificence. The family of Lucinius took their surname of Morena from these fish, in order thus to perpetuate the most silly affection and the remembrance of their insanity. Sea eels necessarily pleased men cloyed with pleasures, and who substituted a kind of cold and cruel curiosity for the terrible emotions which beings peculiarly organized hope to find in evil doing. Gladiators murdering each other, lions or tigers lacerating the bestiary, all these agonies of the amphitheatre had long since lost the attraction of novelty it was a much more exciting spectacle to witness a swarm of sea-eels tearing to pieces an awkward or rebellious slave. Besides, it greatly improved the fish. The atrocious Vidius Polio, who understood these matters, never failed to have sea-eels served him after their odious repast, that he might have the pleasure of eating some part of the body of his victim. Thank heaven, however, some amateurs of this dreaded fish were not so barbarous, they fattened them very well without having recourse to such criminal food. Veal was cut into thin slices and steeped in the blood of the animal for ten days, after which the fish greedily regaled themselves with it. It was doubtless in this manner that the skilful speculator Hirtius, the same already mentioned, nourished his sea eels, which produced him an immense revenue. His fish ponds contained so great a number that he was able to offer six thousand to Julius Caesar on the occasion of the public feast that General gave the day of his triumphal return from the conquest of Gaul. The greater part of the Roman emperors were exceedingly fond of sea eels. The greedy Vitellius, growing tired of this dish, would at last only eat the soft rose, and numerous vessels ploughed the seas in order to obtain them for him. This exquisite rarity again appeared too common to the maniac child, who dismayed and astonished Rome for the space of three years. Heliogabalus brought the soft row of the sea eel into disrepute by ordering that the peasants of the Mediterranean should be gorged with it. This folly amused him, and only cost several millions. That was a trifle when compared to the blood which almost always flowed to satisfy his whims. The Greeks and Latins thought much of the sea eels caught in the Straits of Sicily. They were sometimes served surrounded with crawfish, but more frequently they were dressed with a seasoning much in fashion, composed of pepper, alisander, savoury, saffron, onion, and stoned Damascus plums. These various substances were mixed together, and to them were added wine, sweet sun-made wine, old wine reduced by boiling, garum, vinegar, and oil. At Rome, the fish market was abundantly supplied with sea-eels from the Tiber. Connoisseurs thought nothing of them, they were sold at a low price, and their disgrace became complete directly they appeared on plebeian tables. The Egyptians venerated this fish and always esteemed it sacred. Among the Sybarites, just appreciators of its culinary qualities, the fishers and sellers of sea-eels were exempt from all taxes— They often procured some of such enormous size that we should be tempted to accuse the old chroniclers of exaggeration if we were not aware that this animal attains considerable dimensions. In the year 1786, a sea eel was taken in the Elbe, weighing 60 pounds. This extraordinary fish measured 7 feet 2 inches in length and 25 inches in the girth. Lamprey In spite of its soft and viscid flesh, this fish occupied in Rome a most honourable rank among the multitudinous dishes which intemperance was ever augmenting, and preference was given to that species caught by the enterprising speculators in that strait which separates Sicily from Italy. These good people averred that lampreys which rise to the surface of the sea are immediately dried up by the sun and cannot any more descend to the depths of the ocean this little story did no harm to their sail, On the contrary, they became on that account more curiously interesting. It was also said, and the serious Gesner himself has repeated this fable, that if the fish fastens its mouth to the side of a vessel, it immediately stops, and that the combined power of the wind and the efforts of the rowers are unavailing. The fact is, by means of a kind of suction, it can fasten firmly on any bodies, and one weighing only three pounds has been seen to sustain in the air, with its mouth, a stone weighing twelve pounds. The lamprey has not always been the fashion, but it has had brilliant and glorious epochs. In 1135 it caused so great a fit of indigestion to Henry I, king of England, that that prince died in consequence of it— since then, in the sixteenth century, it has been honoured with the reputation of having caused more than one death. It was sold at a very high price, three pounds at least, and at certain periods the Roman nobles even paid as much as twenty pounds for one of these fish. The ancient metropolis of the world had sometimes strange reminiscences of her former grandeur. The Italian epicures of that remarkable era used to kill the lamprey in candy and wine, a nutmeg was placed in the mouth, and a clove in each of the openings of the gills. They rolled them around in a saucepan, and after adding crushed almonds, bread crumbs, candy and wine, and spices, the whole was cooked over a slow fire. Sea Wolf Hicassius, one of the most estimable ichthyophagists of antiquity, does not hesitate to place the sea-wolf above all the fish which by their excellence were dear to Greece, and the great Archistratus says that the Lubridan, a species of the sea-wolf, is a child of the gods. The Romans, touched no doubt by these magnificent praises, granted to the sea-wolf that favour which a high reputation commands— the immense sturgeon itself was eclipsed by it, and the sea-wolf had the glory of throwing this powerful and renowned rival into oblivion. Their love for its white and tender flesh knew no bounds, and the fishermen of the Tiber were no longer equal to the task of supplying them for the impatient gluttony of the rich inhabitants of the Palatine Mountain. Still, this fish only fetched a high price when taken in certain part of the river from any other place it hardly commanded a few as. pence, between the Sublicius and the sanatorious bridges, a deep, black, and fetid water announced the presence of the continual flood of filth, which the giant city poured into it night and day. It was in the midst of these impurities that shoals of sea-wolves were seen disporting. They fattened on that shocking slime, and thence passed to the delicate tables of Lucullus and Caesar." The Greeks contented themselves with the lupertines taken in clear water, and preferred the head to any other part. Scarus, or Parrot Fish. The Scarus, its modern name is still problematic, furnished the Greeks with one of those exquisite dishes the remembrance of which never dies. The Romans were not yet acquainted with it when Octavius, the commander of a fleet brought on board the vessels a great quantity of this fish, which he ordered to be thrown into the sea along the coast of Campania, and which soon became the delight of the epicures of Rome. History has shown too much disdain by neglecting to say more than a few passing words on the subject of this great service. May a tardy homage of gratitude be paid to the memory of the benefactor of his country. The scarus was prepared without being embowelled and epicures found it impossible to satiate themselves with the entrails, which obtained for it a gastronomic vogue it long enjoyed without a rival. It was asserted that the fish ruminates, that it feeds only on herbage, and that, far from being mute like the other inhabitants of the water, it not only emits sounds but is able to express by its cries the different sensations it experiences— These anomalies, either real or supposed, had, perhaps, as great a share in rendering the scarus celebrated as the delicacy of its flesh and the exquisite flavour of its intestines. Merit the most real can so rarely keep the field unsupported by cajolery. Turbot Rome and Italy were indebted to the praetor Sempronius, or to Rufus Rutilius, for the turbot which they taught their countrymen to appreciate. This fish quickly obtained the success which it merited, and was compared to the pheasant, as souls were likened to partridges, lampreys to quails, and sturgeons to peacocks. Some preferred turbot from the Adriatic Sea, others, that of Ravenna. But all united in declaring that there was not a more delicious food, and that a feast loses all of its charm when this delicacy is wanting." In the reign of Domitian a monstrous turbot was taken, such a one had never been seen in the imperial kitchens. The emperor convoked the senate, and deferred to them to decide in what dish it should be cooked, in order that it might be served whole. The deliberation was long and stormy, all Rome was in a state of expectancy, and the august assembly strove to prove itself worthy of the high confidence reposed in it by Caesar, At length the illustrious old men were tolerably unanimous in their idea that the best way would be to make a dish expressly for the fish, since there was none large enough ready-made, and also that a stove should be constructed vast enough to allow the dish to be placed commodiously upon it. The emperor, the city, and the court applauded the profound wisdom of this decision, and, Le Fu sauce picont. Aristotle does not mention this fish, but his compatriots esteemed highly the turbots of Attica. Tunny. The Greeks greatly praised the tunny fish of Pacanum. Persons who prided themselves on their knowledge in the art of good living, eat only the belly part, and never touched the remainder. The Sinopians, formerly gained immense sums by the tunny fishery along their shores, the effigy of which, perhaps in gratitude, they stamped on their money. This fish came from Pallas Miotides, and passed thence to Tribizond and Pharnacia, whence it followed the coast of Sinopus, and, at length, reached Byzantium, where they took nearly all those which escaped the fisheries of the two first-named stations. The Romans offered tunny fish in sacrifice to Neptune, in order that that god might deign to prevent the Ziphius fish from tearing their nets and forbid the two officious dolphins to assist in their escape. They sold it at a very good price during the autumn and winter, but it fetched less in the summer because it was thought to be unwholesome during that season. The joel and belly were thought the most delicate parts. They were either fried or boiled with pepper, alisander, cumin, onion, mint, sage, and dates, to which was added a mixture of honey, vinegar, oil, and mustard. Archostratus, who, on account of his gastronomic voyages, was looked upon as a high authority, asserts that Sicily and the neighborhood of Constantinople furnished excellent tunny-fish, but that the best were those from Samos, these latter were much renowned among the Greeks who carefully prepared the entrails and feasted on this dish. Athenus relates, on the subject, a witticism of the poet Dorio, a keen and caustic spirit of the period of Aristotle and Philip of Macedon. Being at supper with that prince, a guest ridiculously praised a dish of tunny fish intestines just placed on the table. "'They are certainly excellent,' said Dorio when eaten as I eat them. How then do you eat them? rejoined the gastronomic courtier. With the firm determination, replied the poet, of thinking of nothing better. The fish abounds in certain seas, and Pliny avers that it obstructed the navigation of the Indian Sea to such an extent that the fleet of Alexander the Great was obliged to change its course in order to avoid this impassable barrier." honeyfish sometimes attain an immense size. Father Sati tells us that some were caught in Sardinia weighing no less than 1,000 pounds and sometimes even 1,800 pounds. Conger eel. Near Sisiona, a city of the Peloponnesus, they formerly caught conger eels of such immense size that it required a wagon drawn by oxen to carry a single one. The body the whole of the head, and even the intestines, were eaten. This dish, worthy of being offered by Neptune to his divine colleagues, was capable, like ambrosia, of bestowing immortality on those who had the good fortune of tasting it, and the dead would return to life had it been possible to serve them with a piece of this exquisite fish. These childish exaggerations have not prevented Galen from treating the conger eel with very little respect, He affirms that nothing is more hard or indigestible, and indeed Epicureans of some repute allowed only the head to appear on their tables, and then only at rare intervals, and under the auspices of a relishing sauce which assured its reception. The Romans had still less esteem for this too highly praised fish. However, sometimes a fried conger eel occupied on the sigma an obscure place, In the midst of a seasoning flavoured highly with pepper, alisander, cumin, wild marjoram, dried onion, and the hard yolks of eggs, with which a skillful hand carefully mixed to the whole, vinegar, sweet wine, garum, and cooked wine. Eel In some parts of Egypt the eel was not eaten because it was thought indigestible. In other places it received religious worship— they were ornamented, whether they liked it or not, with silver, gold, and precious stones, and priests daily offered them the entrails of animals and cheese. The Greeks thought highly of eels. Behold the of feasts, cried Edicastes, at the moment when one was served. I will be her Paris. And the glutton seized and devoured it immediately. Boyota, where this fish was immolated to the gods, the Straits of Sicily, and the Copian Lake furnished eels remarkable for their delicacy and size. These were served fried and enveloped in beet leaves. They enjoyed a high reputation among the Sybarites, a choice nation who would have invented cookery if the art had not already exist, and among whom a repast was so serious a matter that a whole year was not thought too long in order to meditate upon it and get it ready." But Hippocrates did not like the eel, and he forbade it to his patients and to persons attacked with a pulmonary affection, so that this queen of luxury, as Archostratus calls it, met with as many enemies as partisans. Egypt adored it, Greece was enamoured of it, Rome despised it, and the plebeian alone reserved it to the humiliation in his brutal orgies. Apicius, however, has condescended to notice this fish— Mix, says he, pepper, alisander, parsley seed, dill, and dates. Add to this honey, vinegar, garum, oil, mustard, and cooked wine. Serve this sauce with the eel. Nations have their ages of splendor. Viands have their epics of celebrity and glory. This one seems to us fast falling into decay, in spite of some isolated efforts in order to make it flourish. When Rockingham was named Member of Parliament, he ordered thirteen barrels of eels to be brought to London, for the banquet he gave on that occasion. No one to our knowledge has since prepared so gigantic a metelote. Travellers formerly saw in the Ganges beautiful eels three hundred feet long, a magnificent species never seen in Europe. The eel, so much despised by the Romans, is rather in favour in several countries Certain species are much esteemed, that named goussot, among others, deserves the preference it always obtains in Rouen. Pike The pike was very little esteemed by ancient gastronomists, who viewed it only as an ignoble inhabitant of muddy water, and the implacable enemy of frogs. It was received opinion that this despotic ruler of ponds lived for several centuries, and it may be correct. Among the examples of longevity of this fish, the most remarkable is that of the pike of Kaiser's Lantern, which was 19 feet long, weighed 350 pounds, and lived at least 235 years. It is reported that the Emperor Barbosa himself threw it, on the 5th of October, 1262, into the pond where it was caught in 1497, and that this enormous pike... Wore a golden ring, which was made so that it would expand, and on which was engraved the date when the fish was spawned. Its skeleton was for a long time preserved at Mannheim. The multiplication of pikes would be immense if the spawn and pickerel, in the first year of their existence, were not the prey of several other fishes, for it has been calculated that in a female pike of middling size, 184,000 eggs were found. In the north, and particularly in Siberia, the pike is preserved, salted, and smoked. The largest only are used, those weighing about two pounds. When they have been drawn, cleaned, and washed, they are cut in pieces, stratified with salt, in barrels. A brine is formed in which they are left for three days, then they are dried or smoked for one month. After this time, they are put in another barrel with fresh salt, wetted with vinegar. Carp. The carp occupied a very honourable rank with the Greeks and Latins, but only as a fish of that second order. At Athens they picked out the bones and stuffed it with silphium, cheese, salt, and marjoram. The Romans boiled it and mixed it with sow's paps, fowl's flesh, fig-peckers, or thrushes, and when the whole was made into a kind of pulp they added raw eggs and oil, then they sprinkled it over with pepper and alisander, after which they poured wine, garum, and cooked wine over it, and when the culinary combination was completed in the stewpan, by the assistance of a slow fire, it was then thickened with flour. In several countries it is known at what period the carp was naturalized. Peter Marshall brought it to England in 1514, Peter Ox to Denmark in 1560. A few years after it was introduced into Holland and Sweden. The fecundity of this fish is surprising. No less than 621,600 eggs were found in a carp weighing nine pounds, and it is very long-lived. Several have been seen in the moats of the castle on Poncartrain, which were proved to be 150 years old. Carp are capable of acquiring considerable dimensions. The most gigantic on record was that caught at Bischoff's house, near Frankfurt, on the Oder. It weighed seventy pounds. Eelpout The liver of the eelpout, also known by the names Lota, Lote, and Lotus, is particularly large and so delicate that a certain countess of Buchlingen squandered a large portion of her income to gratify her taste for them— that lady, worthy, by her refined and antique taste, of the proudest period of Roman extravagance, was, perhaps, not aware that the most fastidious Epicureans of Italy, enthusiastic admirers of the liver of this fish, had it served with a sauce composed of vinegar, grated cheese, and garlic, to which they added leeks and onions, chopped fine. TROUT Elian speaks of a fish found in the river Astraeus, in Macedonia— which Gesner believed to be identical with the trout. It does not appear, however, that the Greeks knew the real value and merit of this fish, but on the other hand, the Romans assigned it to the foremost rank, next to the surgeon, red mullets, and the sea eel, especially when they had been fattened to the thick waters of the Tiber, on the very spot where the Labridans acquired their plumpness and value. The trout was dressed like the preceding fish. Goldfish This fish, dear to the Greeks, had the honour of giving its name to the celebrated ichthyophagist, Sergius, who was passionately fond of it, and who took the name Orata from Orata goldfish, to preserve in his family the remembrance of his gluttony or his affection. His compatriots, the Romans, highly valued the goldfish, and sought with eagerness those which had fed on the shellfish of the lake of Lucrin that precious reservoir between Baie and Kumé, which never deceived the hopes of the gastronomist nor the greedy expectations of the fishermen. The goldfish was served with a gravy composed of pepper, alisander, carrots, wild marjoram, rue, mint, myrtle leaves, and the yolks of eggs, mixed with honey, vinegar, oil, wine, and garum. The slow cooking of these various ingredients gave them the required homogeneousness. End of section 22. Recording by Corinne LePage.